Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10, and I'll read from there in just a moment. But before we get there, I want to celebrate a big win for this church. Last week, we had a record attendance here at Greenville Oaks. We had over 1,400 people here on, uh, on Easter Sunday. And I want to I wanna just say to you all, thank you so much for all of you who served in so many different capacities to make that day possible. Uh, we had three worship services. There was a lot going on when it came to children's ministry, greeting ministry. We even had uh, parking lot attendants who were going out in the rain helping people out. And so thank you to every single one of you who played a role in that. And for those of you who were here to celebrate with us this past Sunday. I'm excited to see what God's going to continue to do in this place. But we believe He is working and uh, are looking forward to continuing in the vision that he's given to us as a congregation. Uh, This morning, like I said, I want to read from Jeremiah, but last week I want to remind you a little bit of what we talked about. I talked from Romans chapter 8, the reminder in this series that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Sometimes we hear that verse and we think that God's going to turn everything out the way we want it to. And I think we've lived enough life, many of us, to know that's not the case, that we deal with difficult circumstances. But what we find in Romans 8 is a promise that in all things, the good and the bad, that God works in those things for his glory and for our good. Today I want to continue this series called All Things, talking about the the God who's the maker of all things. And so I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 10 uh, in verse, let's get this right, verse 16. Jeremiah, uh, it says there, He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these... For he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Let's pray together as we uh, begin to talk about God and his creation. Father, I thank you for this story of Genesis. The story throughout scripture, God, that reminds us that your creation was not done on day seven. That you continue to be a God of new creation in our own lives, God, in the lives around us. And I thank you for the the glimpses of new creation that we see from children that are here for the first time, like Garrett, to others, God, that are are here showing signs of life, God, and what you're doing to raise up new things out of even death in our lives. God, this morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen. I think one of the unfortunate stigmas in our culture surrounds the practice of counseling. I know there are people that are embarrassed to even admit in some way that they've been to a counselor. But i just got to say as your preacher that I've benefited a great deal from counselors in my life. From premarital counseling that Holly and I went through to try to secure a firm footing in marriage to just personal counseling that I've had on and off with people. I, the, the, the value of having wise people in our lives to contribute to our discernment and to live life well is something that I'm blessed by. And if that's not something that, that has been a blessing to you and you're coming into a, a time of life where there's just difficulty, let me encourage you to think about uh, going to, to find somebody who can speak into your life, whether that's just an elder of this church, one of us as staff members, or, or we'd love to refer you to others who could help you uh, even in a more professional way than some of us are trained to do. What I find, though, in that counseling is what's been most helpful has been being able to look at my family background, the family of origin that I came from, and discovering why I think through things sometimes the way I do. 
And it's not just family of origin when it comes to our personal lives, but I find that so many of us find value in learning what our origins and where we came from, how that impacts us today. Think about religious groups and where we've come from in Churches of Christ. It's so helpful for me to take a class like Restoration History to understand why we do things the way we do them in our churches. Or or you can think about all kinds of things. Last Sunday, we talked about resurrection. And resurrection is a powerful, important thing to us who are Christians. But that event is not nearly as significant were it not for understanding the context of Scripture and the Old Testament and how God enters into that story. I mean, resurrection is incredible by itself, but when you understand the story of God and his people, what he's been redeeming his people from and into, it's important to know that background, to know the power of the resurrection. It's like the resurrection prompts all these questions about why was the resurrection necessary? Why did Jesus have to die for our sins? Well, if you know the story going back, you know that we as people, we are caught in sin all the time. And from the beginning, God calls Abraham to be the father of many nations. He calls them to be a a, a contrast community, to raise up a family that would show people the way of God. But they don't live that out all the time, do they? Last week I talked about the story of Joseph. and Dysfunction shows up in Abraham's family from, from early on. But as the story goes on, we see that sin continues to be a problem for Israel. And like many of the pagan uh, cultures around them, sacrifice was a normal part of how things worked. That uh, some innocent uh, animal was killed so that people could be forgiven of their sins. It seems strange in our culture to think of this, but this was common in religions around that time. And so for Jesus to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, it's as if to say, hey, you don't have to keep doing this every time you come to temple, every time you come to church. This is a once-for-all sacrifice, and our sins are now paid forever because of what Jesus did. But as you begin to reveal these stories and understand the backstory, it prompts more questions, doesn't it? It's like that book, if you give a mouse a cookie, right? I mean, you're going to get more questions, right? If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk. And if you give him some milk, he's going to want a straw. And that's the way these origin stories develop. Because part of you goes, well, Abraham's great, but did it really all begin with Abraham? What came before Abraham? And the story of Scripture tells about all of that. So origins are important when it comes to understanding our life, when it comes to counseling sometimes. It's important also when it comes to the story of God and resurrection to understand where did this all start and where did it originate. Today I want to talk about where this all originated. About God who is the maker of all things. That Before we ever appeared on earth, God had already in plan a design to make his creation good, to call it good, and one day to restore it even after the brokenness that's resulted because of the fall. So today I want to talk through a little bit about creation. I want to talk about all this uh, in this context. And some of you know this. We, we have this in, innate desire within us to know our origins, I think. I think it's something that's given to us. I mean, you, if, if you have kids, you know this, right? There comes a time, and I think we're getting into the stage more and more, where they want to know the answers to all kinds of questions, don't they? They're so inquisitive. Have you ever had that conversation with your kids where they get to that stage and, and they ask a question and then you give this long explanation and think you have an answer and, they, well, and then the response is, well, why is that, right? And they just keep on with that why question over and over again. And it's all driving back to where did this all start? Where, where did it all begin? And, 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 and this is a story that Genesis tells that I want to talk about this morning. 
Now, I think it's important for us to realize that when the Genesis story is written, when this story is told to begin with, there are other creation myths that are out there amongst other religions at the time. For instance, there's this Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish that's uh, something you could pull up online and read today. It's a story that they're trying to start struggle with. How did this all begin? This has been a question for cultures throughout the years. There's another story called the Epic of Gilgamesh that's dated 2100 B.C., where in Mesopotamia, they're trying to figure it out. Where did we all begin? This has been a question for human existence for a long time. And many of those stories, if you look back at them, the creation myths of other religions or other cultures, uh, some of the stories sound a little familiar, but there's some key differences in those stories. See, many of those stories, humans are created out of a war that happens between the gods. Kind of like Greek mythology, you, you can think about it in that context. Like these, these gods have these wars, and out of the wars there's this damage that happens, and humans somehow come out of the story of the wars between the gods. It's not a, a, God's intention to create you know, humans or anything like that. It just kind of happens by accident. But the Genesis story is trying to speak a subversive word, a different word to say, yeah, that may be the story you hear about in your culture, but our God is so much better than that. This is how it all began. And when we come to Genesis, we often want to ask a different set of questions than what the writers are trying to answer. We, we, we try to lay 20, 20th century questions or 21st century questions on a text that goes way back. And so we really have this question about historicity and did this happen and was it 20 was it 24 hours seven days that he got this done those are the questions we tend to ask but those are not the questions that the writer of genesis is trying to answer they're trying to speak a word into these cultures to say yet you know these conversations about who god is but our god is even better than that he's far different So today what I want to do is I want to talk about three different ways that the Genesis story, the story of God, who's the maker of all things, three different ways that it's trying to tell a different story than the creation myths that many would have known in those days. And I think there's some connections to our day that will make a lot of sense as we walk through these. The number one way that the Genesis story, Yahweh, is different from the stories that are told out there. Number one, first, Genesis tells of a God who created order out of chaos. Genesis tells of a God who created order out of chaos. Now that's very different from these other stories because many of these other myth stories about creation tells a story about really chaos turning into more chaos. Like the story about these humans coming. We're just kind of minions in a story. You just kind of wind up here, right? And and God doesn't really have a plan for for lives. In fact, humans are just kind of a problem to the gods. We're, We're servants or something like that. But that's not the way the story in Genesis starts. It's much more than that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. I want to start reading in verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. The story goes on day by day, and we see some refrains in this story. God calls it good each day after creation. But we see this move of God who creates order out of the chaos that's existing in the beginning. The Spirit of God's hovering over the waters, over the abyss would be another way to say that. 
So there's all this chaos that's going on. What does God do? He brings order to that chaos. He brings light, and he brings day, and he brings night. He, he orders creation day by day so that it makes sense out of the chaos that God steps into. And he steps back, and he calls it good. Now, many of us have focused on the bad parts of creation. And surely, after Genesis 3, we see the result of sin that causes all kinds of problems. But it's important for us to see that before Genesis 3 comes, God is calling this creation a good thing. He sees it as good. And so, so often in our, our, our understanding of God or our understanding about the afterlife, we, we often talk about, you know, hopefully one day we'll get to escape this earth, right? But that's not really the hope of Scripture. Like, God cares deeply about His creation. And as we're going to talk about in a couple more weeks, He cares deeply about the restoration of His creation one day as well. So things make a turn in Genesis 3, but when Jesus returns to earth, we actually see a similar theme to what's going on in creation. In the book of John, John 1, I want to read uh, the beginning of his gospel. John 1, as it tells the story uh, of Jesus. And I want you to notice the first three words sound pretty familiar to a story we just read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now you notice that the story opens with these three words, in the beginning. It's an echo back to the story of Genesis chapter 1. John's trying to put on our radar to say, this God who's coming into the world in Jesus, the Word made flesh. Hey, there's something that ties back to the story in the very beginning of time. In the beginning, God creates order out of chaos. And when God brings Jesus into the world, he's doing the same thing. He's bringing order to the chaos of our world as it exists. And what we see is that Jesus, the word described in John 1, he's there at the very beginning. Nothing was made without the word, Jesus himself. So often we think about God the Father doing this, but this is a work of the Godhead that's at work in creation. We'll read in a minute from Genesis 126. It says there, let us make mankind in our own image. In other words, us. Who is us, right? In this God? Well, Jesus has a part to play. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Trinity is at work already in Genesis 1, working to do the work of creation. There's another passage I want to point to in Colossians chapter 1, where it's described about Jesus' work in creation. Colossians 1, verse 15. It says there, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. See, in Jesus, the Son Creation gets its start. And you notice that theme of all things shows up there in Colossians 1. All things have been created by God. And when Jesus comes to earth, what happens? The same thing that happens in Genesis 1, bringing order to the chaos. That's exactly what happens when Jesus comes to earth. What does he do? There's storms. And and what does he do when the storms are are, are on the sea? He calms those storms. He brings order to the chaos of our world. Or when the lame and the, and, and the blind need healing, Jesus is the one who restores their sight and their ability to walk. He brings order to the chaos of our world. 
He pronounces peace on those who have no peace. In the midst of a world that's full of chaos, God didn't just create order in Genesis 1. He continues his work of ordering the world and does that through his body, the church, at times as well. So number one, our God creates order out of chaos. The second thing that differentiates God from these other stories out there. Second, Genesis tells of a God who creates humans in his image. He creates humans in his image. Now this is a very different picture from the other stories that are out there. Because the other stories talk about humans as if they're kind of less than than anything that the gods would want to spend their time on. But God creates great intention when he creates humans in the Genesis story. Genesis 1, verse 26. Let me pick up there in the story of Genesis. This is a great passage for us to understand our identity. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female He created them. See, God shows a great intentionality in Genesis, doesn't he? Caring to to create in an important way. And what does he do? He gives the image of God. He he stamps his image on every created human that comes to, to live on the earth. Now think about the implications for that for a moment. Every single person that you encounter, from those in your house to those that live across the world, to your friends to, yes, even your enemies, Every one of them is created with the image of God stamped on them. Now Colossians 1 talked about that Jesus is the the invisible. He, He makes visible who God is, right? He's the image of the invisible God. We don't know who God looks like. I mean, I've never had an encounter with with God the Father, but when I look at Jesus, when I hear stories of Jesus, Jesus gives us an image. If you're wondering what God looks like, Jesus makes that image possible for us to see. But the astounding thing about Genesis 1 is it's not just Jesus. Every single human who lives on the earth has been given the divine image. This is amazing, and this would have been incredibly subversive to those in that culture. Because in that culture, the king would have been seen as a divine person. But what the Genesis story does is it democratizes God. It it makes all of us partakers in the divine image. It makes all of us, in some ways, kings, co-rulers with God, taking care of the creation on his behalf and alongside him. We are made in his image. You need to hear that maybe this morning yourself. Maybe right now you're struggling with your identity and what it looks like to be whole, what it looks like to be a person that God's called. He's created to you to be a son and a daughter or a daughter of his. You bear the divine mark on your body. When people look at you, in some way they're able to see God. And if we could see ourselves that way, and we could begin to see others that way, it would change literally everything in our world if we would see things in a new way, the way God describes it. Every single person bears the image of God. In fact, you don't just bear the image of God. Did you know that you have the name of God on your body? The Hebrew term for God that's described in Exodus when he reveals his name to Moses, he calls himself Yahweh. Actually, we don't really know how to say it because it's four consonant sounds in the Hebrew. We don't have vowel sounds. We've got to kind of provide them for those words. 
So Yahweh is kind of the way that we've said it. Jews are very careful not to say that name for God because they don't want to take God's name in vain in any way. And so they tend to say Lord or Elohim, other words, uh, instead of Yahweh. But this is the divine name that God uh, gives for himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. Now what's interesting is, again, this is read from right to left, okay? So the first words on the right, or letters on the right, kind of Y-H-W-H is kind of how you would see that in English. But here's the cool thing. If you were to stack those up and down, some of the rabbis have done this. And you know what it looks like when you put those words up and down? It's like a human body. Like the first letter is kind of the, the head, if you can kind of make sense out of this. The, the second letter kind of makes the arms and, 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 and chest. The, the third letter is kind of like the core of one's body. And the, the fourth letter almost makes the waist and the legs. Do you, can you see that in the image that I'm describing? And I love this interpretation, the way the rabbis have talked about this, because it reminds us that every time we are encountering someone that we are challenged to love, or, or maybe those that we love deeply, or maybe it's a child that's born into the world, every time you see another human, you see the divine name inscribed on them. Wouldn't this change our world if we could see everyone that we encounter to know that they are made in the image of God? Every human bears the divine image, the divine name. And then third, Genesis tells the story of a God who deserves worship far more than the things he created. He deserves worship far more than any of the created things that he has made. I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 10. I want to look at Jeremiah 10, this this passage that describes God as the maker of all things. But I think it's important for us to see the context that this comes in. Jeremiah 10, beginning in verse 1. Let's read there. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They, they cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel and they adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Drop down to verse 14. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob, and this is the verse we read earlier, he is who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Now this is significant to understand this context because it's one thing to say God created everything. We've learned that from an early age. But Jeremiah is trying to say, hey, there is a difference between Yahweh and the rest of these gods that other people worship. Because the rest of these gods, you know what they had to do to have an image of them? (laughs) They had to take some wood, and they had to cut it up and form it kind of like a person or a god or something like that. They they laid wood around it, or or gold and silver, and then they bowed down to this thing. It doesn't even have life in it, can't do anything. How embarrassing is that? But on the other hand, we serve a God who is the maker of all things. He's not a created thing. We couldn't possibly create Yahweh. No, he's the one who created us and all things on the earth. See, this is a passage about idolatry. Here's what idolatry is. I want to define idolatry this morning. Idolatry is any created thing that we worship in place of the creator. 
And I want you to think about in our lives how often we get this out of order, right? The order of things is that God is the creator. God calls us as, as, as very good when he creates humans. And he calls the creation good. And every time we get that out of order of God, of humans, of creation, we begin to see dysfunction occur in our lives. I mean, think about in our lives the times where you've had sin that's crept up on you or or you've been involved in some kind of dysfunction or problem, chaos that happens in the world. Chaos happens because the order that God brought to the world gets flipped in some way. I think about uh, the, the things that we have idolatry about. Maybe we don't make idols like they used to in the same way, and we might think, that was a thing of the past. We're, we're beyond that. But I think if you look around us, there still are times that we do this. That we put created things above the creator who should be worthy of our worship alone. For instance, how many of us have, have found identity in our jobs? Our jobs become, what do you do, right? We know to answer with our job. Our job is so important to us, and I find that those without a job that go through a time of job loss, it's hard to even know who I am in this season because we define ourselves so much by work. And when we do that, when we place our identity solely on our work or the success that happens there, let me tell you, things get out of order and dysfunction begins to happen because your work cannot possibly sustain your identity. Only God alone can do that. It happens in lots of ways. Some of us, it's our kids. Our, our relationships become the created things that, that actually surpass the creator. So when we put our kids or our spouse in front of everything else, then no, no, it's actually we've got to love God first. That's the first command. And when we love him, what's the second command that follows along? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the order that God continues to give. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's money that we put our trust in. This created thing, it's just paper. But it becomes to mean so much more in our culture. And sometimes we place our identity there. I want you to think about it this way. How many of us have been through addictions or know those who've had that have destroyed their lives? And every time there's an addiction, it's because we get this thing out of order. It's because there's some kind of substance, sometimes of, some type of created thing that becomes more important in our lives than the creator who created it. Now, God has created a lot of good things for us to enjoy, to find pleasure in. But the only way we continue to find pleasure in those things is if we uh, partake of those things in the order and under the commands that he's given to us. When we step outside those commands, when we get the order out of whack, all kinds of dysfunction happens as a result of it. So this God is very different from the other pagan gods that are out there. This is a God who's ordered things in creation. He's, he's turned chaos into order. And anytime we get this flipped and we begin to worship something else other than him, we're doing just what they did with the idols back in the day. Maybe a little more nuanced. It may not look as foolish as bowing down to something that's wood, but you're going to find that idol crumbles every time you try to put the weight of your identity or your worth on it. See, when God is described as the maker of all things, we are being reminded that he is worthy of our worship and nothing else is. That Those other gods are worthless. They're not worth worshiping. Those are myths. But this is a story you can bet your life on. And these are the claims of Scripture. And these are the radical claims of Genesis, that the writer of Genesis, that the community of faith is trying to say, yeah, you heard these stories about creation out there in our origins, but let us tell you where it all started. It all started because of Yahweh who did these three things. He's differentiated in these ways. God is a God who creates order out of chaos. Our God is a God who creates humans who bear the divine image. And our God is a God who is worthy of our worship above anything he's created in this world. When we say he's created all things, I mean he's created all things. There's nothing 
that we see. And I know sometimes it's easier for us to talk about the things we create, but anything we create, God has given us the ability to do. But the cool thing about God is when he, he gives us his image, part of that image is to be creators ourselves, to be innovators, to be those who are on the edges of culture, pushing the edges, trying to continue to work in his act of creation. And it's a gift that's given to us. But I love artists who are able to put this on display or people who are able to create things because when we see those creations, it's a reflection in some way of the gifts that God has given to us. This God who creates continues to do work of creation in our own lives. And here's the thing about God. If God is the one who created this all, which is my contention this morning, if he's the the innovator, if he's the one who created, if he's the inventor of all this, I'm going to trust my life to the commands he gives about how to live life in the world he's created. Think about this. I mean, think about any invention, the one who created it, who, who went through all the product, you know, testing and trying to get it to a place where it is what it is today. Wouldn't you trust that inventor, the one who created it, to tell you how to run the thing that he's created or she's created? And that's the good news about the God that we worship is the one who created. He's given us scripture. He's given us a community of faith. He's given us tradition over the years to walk alongside and to realize that the one who created it all has given us commands for how to live best in this world. So that's why I'm trusting this God. He's created it all. He's the maker of all things. And that is vital for us to understand because when he gives commands that don't make sense to us, it's easy for us to take up the reins of our life and begin to live the way we want to live. To pretend like he's trying to take away life with the commands he gives us. But he's the inventor. He's the maker of it all. He's given us the best way of life possible. And so a life that's well lived is a life that's lived by the commands of the one who created it all. So what do you think? Maybe this week, maybe we need to read that manual he's given to us a bit more. Maybe we need to be in connection and relationship with him, conversation, so that we know uh, that we're always in relationship, stepping into the way of life he's calling us to live. I know we step out of line with God's will. We're all people who've, who've gone astray. But scripture says to trust in the Lord with all our hearts, to lean not on our own understandings. We didn't create this, but in all these things, rely on him, and he's going to direct our paths. And that's what our prayer is is that we can live on his path, knowing that any time we get off course, his light can direct us back. And the church is called to be a people who always receive people back to the path because we've all strayed, haven't we? And we all have grace from a God who runs to meet prodigals and runs to meet us as well. Let's pray together as we close our time in the Word. God, I thank you so much for your creation for the pictures and images that we saw earlier in our service, for the praises we've given to you today. We believe that you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise. And God, for too long we've given our worship and we've worshiped at the feet of other idols, of other things. And God, we want to repent of that this morning again. We know that you've ordered this world out of chaos, God. You make it uh, the, the way it should be. And you've given us great things to enjoy, but only in the order you've given us. So God, we trust you that the commands you've given are ways toward life that the law you've given us is actually good, that we want to meditate on it day and night so that we can be a people who are planted firmly in the soil of your kingdom. God, this morning, would you help us to to, to praise you? Would you also give us gifts of creativity? You've given them to each one of us. Help us to be creators, co-rulers with you in this world to do good and not harm, to testify to your kingdom and all the good that you have to bring. God, we, we thank you for your kingdom, and we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I'll be standing now for our benediction. We'll close.
God has gifted his body with so many gifts, and I see them among me this morning. You are a gift. You, are, you bear the divine image. Even your body itself proclaims the name of God. So may you be creators this week, and may you live your life in tune with the commands of the one who created it all and has given us the best way of life possible. May we love God, may we love people, and may we serve others. Go in peace.